are you today? Welcome to Habitually Disruptive. My name is Gerardo Munoz. I am the 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, and I'm so grateful that you are listening today. Uh, you have found this episode on the feed for um, the Umbrella Podcast, Two Dope Teachers, and uh, Mike. In the words of the philosopher Jay-Z, you could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me, and I appreciate it. Today we've got uh, a great interview. Uh, episode number two of Habitually Disruptive is my good friend and fellow disruptor, Kimberly Dickstein Hughes, language arts teacher, high school in New Jersey. Uh, most notably, Kimberly is the 2020 New Jersey State Teacher of the Year. And we have a really fun conversation um, about what it means to disrupt in the context that she's in. We talk about music. We talk about all kinds of really good stuff. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Um, so just going to start off. Uh, it's uh, it's Thursday, Friday. No, it's not Thursday. It's Friday, July 9th. And uh, I am here in the recording studio, also known as my soccer jersey basement, um, getting this introduction done. Um, there's a couple of things that I think it's really important for you all to kind of understand about this idea of disruption. Uh, Habitually Disruptive seeks to highlight the stories <clears throat> of fellow disruptors who are challenging, questioning, pushing back, or just reflecting critically on themselves and their participation in a system that is often very difficult for, um, for our young people to navigate. The system of schooling is um, obviously the one that is central to most of our lives. Our experience of schooling probably in schooling probably shape us more than any other experience that we have um, in terms of our human development. This is obviously outside of family and outside of community, but there's also a point where all of our social life happens within an educational context. Um, uh, what we learn about friendships and relationships and the things of the world comes through our experiences in school. And so school is where we will center a lot of the work um, and where I will center a lot of these conversations when it comes to making disruption a habit. But there are going to be some folks that I speak to in the coming weeks and um, who work outside of education, um, because as it turns out, there are oppressive systems all over the world. The status quo is not something that is confined to schools or the workplace. What we find is that there are a lot of assumptions, a lot of beliefs, and a lot of practices that go uninterrogated. And that's what I'm committed to doing. I'm committed to bringing you those stories as State Teacher of the Year, but also as a public intellectual, if I would be so bold to say so about myself, so that you can be a part of these conversations. So hopefully you, you get a chance to really enjoy um, my conversation with Kimberly, um, fellow NEA member, uh, which is wonderful, and uh, we'll be talking about in a second. But I'm going to give you, just talk a little bit about what's on my mind these days. Um, I obviously spend a lot of time on social media, especially if you follow me, follow me on Twitter. Uh, you know that generally I, I respond pretty quickly. Generally, I retweet things and 
Um, I'm in a lot of communication there. Uh, sometimes I'm tweeting stuff, but most of the time I'm just tweeting what's on my mind. Um, I'm not always engaging in debates and arguments, and I'm kind of ambivalent about that. You know, sometimes I feel like I need to be in that public square a little bit more, but then other times I realize that there are spaces where where uh, where real discussion, authentic, informed discussion, isn't happening. Um, and so it's kind of that double-edged sword. Now, having said that, I love Twitter. Um, it's perfect for me. I don't have much of an attention span. I have a lot of things on my mind and not a lot of places to put them. Hence the fact that I'm a part of three podcasts and I talk directly on two of them. Um, so it becomes a little bit of a place for me to just put ideas out there. <clears throat> but recently, obviously, if you have... Um, if you have been connected to any kind of media, whether it's the newspaper, whether it's the um, the local news, whether it's the national news, especially on social media, you know that there's a, um, a raging debate about critical race theory in schools happening right now. It's a weird debate. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about it because what's being debated isn't necessarily critical race theory. In my view, what's being debated is uh, whether the children of color in our schools have a right to understand their history and to understand the total history of this country that they live in. Um, so that's not critical race theory. Critical race theory, as I understand it, is rooted in conflict theory. And I'm just not sure that I subscribe to conflict theory that much. However, I have read the work of Derek Bell. I have read the work of Kimberly Crenshaw. Check out her amazing podcast, by the way. Um, and I have read the work of other critical race theorists that I find to be very informative. And so when people talk about attacking critical race theory and they talk about debating critical race theory and keeping it out of our schools, it's just really interesting because that's not really what they're talking about. But instead of going in and trying to re-educate people um, and, you know, shout out to those of you who are engaged in the re-education process of folks of kind of going out there and saying, actually, this is what critical race theory is. This is why it's not really happening in schools, all this kind of stuff. I realize that these are folks who are willfully misinforming and disinforming uh, the public about this. I saw a post by Jingle Bling on Facebook and I'm like, dude, like I'm not a stay in your lane kind of person, um, but I'm also a kind of person that doesn't like to tweet or post about things that I'm not well educated on um, because you get flamed, first of all. And second of all, it's irresponsible. Um, I've enjoyed being on Twitter and watching Emmanuel Acho uh, eat a little bit of crow as his... Um, criticism of Shakari Richardson and his sort of hot takes on marijuana and the legalization thereof have proven to be woefully um, uninformed. And so then he had to go on, make a two minute video. He didn't have to do this. He chose to do this. He chose to make a two minute video, egg all over his face, talking about how he was shamed into researching. And I just really felt like that was such an unfortunate choice of phrase on his part. Shamed into research? Like, why aren't you researching anyway? It's a simple Google search to find something that maybe is marginally reliable that you can start 
um, building your knowledge on. Um, but instead, he kind of goes on and throws this little throws this little tantrum um, about being shamed by social media. By the way, it was a lot of black and brown women who were who were critiquing him and pushing back on him on social media. Uh, but he says shamed, which I think is a really interesting uh, choice of words for him as a very successful male. Um, but you know, and then, and then he goes on to very resentfully call out the racist origins of the criminalization of marijuana. And so it's just really interesting to me when people feel that they can take a platform on things that they're not super educated about and then get upset when somebody criticizes them. I do want to shout out some folks that I think are just consistently there holding us accountable on social media. Uh, Shanna White, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your first name correctly. I've only read it. <laughs> um, the critiques that you offer folks um, are so powerful and so useful. And um, I was really sad the first time I saw that you had been um, that you had been banned from Twitter and, uh, because I love your takes and I love your analysis and your questions. Uh, Jen, the tutor also, uh, we're friends. I love listening, listening. I love seeing Jen, uh, engage with people and push back. Just Jen is one of the smartest people I've ever come across on social media and is, um, just so, just so precise in her responses to folks. So it's really good stuff. So um, that's just been really interesting for me personally. Um, I don't necessarily teach critical race theory, but I would be lying to you if I said that my studies of critical race theory, both as an undergraduate taking classes um, in the same institution as one of the founders, Richard Delgado, um, reading Derek Bell's work and then coming back to graduate school where the faculty in my program, um, a good number of them had critical race theory background. Um, I, I don't really incorporate all that, a lot of that stuff into my day-to-day -day teaching. However, when I teach ethnic studies, you know, when I teach uh, ethnic studies coursework and social justice coursework. I have a great community organizing class. It's a lot of fun. I do feel like it's my responsibility to let folks know that there is a thing called critical race theory out there and that we won't delve deeply into it because it is really heady. And, you know, it's, it's a lot for high schoolers. I, I'm not in the camp that doesn't believe high schoolers can grasp it or understand it. I just think that it's difficult to get as deep with it in a high school environment as they'll be able to get in college. But, you know, the, the ironic thing, of course, for me is that, you know, you have these attacks on critical race theory and folks showing up to school board meetings uh, to go to the open comments and make uh, attacks on critical race theory and demand that we stop teaching it. Well, here's what's gonna happen in the fall, people. Kids are gonna walk into class and they're going to be like, well, what's critical race theory? And why don't they want you to teach it? And as a professional, it is, and I tell my students this all the time, it is literally my job to help you understand things. So it, it's sort of interesting because I do, I don't think this is careless on the anti-CRT people's part. I think this is actually very intentional because what you do is you provoke, you say, stop teaching critical race theory, you put the question out there, and then we're teaching about what it is, and then the outcry begins, right? So um, checkmate is what they think, but it's just so fascinating how this will probably lead directly to the thing that they don't want to have happen.
<clears throat> as as for myself, um, this has not been a super chill summer. Hasn't been super relaxing. Um, there's a lot happening, you know, a lot of transition happening in my world. A lot of uh, folks around me just kind of questioning where they are right now and whether that's the best place to be to serve communities and make a difference. And so there's been a lot of that kind of anxiety. And my, my sense is that COVID really brought a lot of this on, uh, not only because schools were very awkward in how they dealt with the reality of COVID. I want to make it really clear. I don't say that as a criticism. I don't say that as a complaint. Um, we haven't had anyone trying to teach and learn in a pandemic in over a hundred years. And so it's not super surprising that this was difficult, but I think, um, I think for a lot of folks that I've talked to, the COVID's just really exacted a major price. And I can really empathize with that. It isn't that I don't love teaching anymore. It isn't that I don't believe in teaching or education anymore. I'm going to be testing me sometimes, like not going to lie. I feel myself tested, but you do wonder how many radical changes you still have left. How many more times are you going to be reimagining things that have been disrupted in your life? And I know that for a disruptor to complain about disruption is probably a little weird. Um, so, but, but I do think that when you get to a point, it, it, you know, it's exacted a heavy cost on a lot of educators. So, you know, there's been a lot kind of going on. Um, I haven't really even started thinking about next year um, and I'll be stepping into a new role. So that's going to be really interesting for me. I'll be in a leadership role of sorts. Um, and so this is sort of uh, my opportunity to try to infuse the mindsets that I have into a leadership, uh, you know, kind of capacity and see if they actually translate well. We'll see. Um, but a lot of the summer has been my own experimentation uh, with living my own path and living my own life and doing things on the terms that I want to do them. Um, you know, I have an opportunity to get perspectives out there and I occupy, I, I've occupied a platform for the last uh, few months as state teacher of the year. So a lot of opportunities have come my way and I'm starting to, you know, realize how difficult it is to show up and do the best that you can when you don't have a boss holding you accountable and really like the boss holding me accountable right now is me. And I'm not a very good boss. Y'all. I let myself off the hook all the time, but you know, I, I hope that you maybe will let summer disrupt some of what schooling is and some of what teaching is. Teaching is very much about show up at this time from this time to this time. You're teaching this subject to these students is very regimented. It's very structured at least where I'm teaching. And then I have my 40 minute, you know, uninterrupted planning time. I have my duty free lunch. I have meetings and then I can go home and that's when my job is over. Well, producing these podcasts, doing some writing. Um, I've been <clears throat> really blessed to be asked to, uh, to speak to different groups of people and to work on projects. And I've been given a lot of leeway to do this. And that's just something that I really have to, uh, recognize and take ownership of because like you can't complain about your job if you literally have created your job and it's completely on you how far you go with it so the experiment is, is clunky um, some days are better than others I would venture to say that maybe today is a good day um, but it's only half over at this point so who knows and you know 
Asia, um, my friend who co-hosts the Exit Interview podcast, also on Tudor Productions. Um, you know, Asia is a big believer that educators need to get out of schools and start working for themselves to make a difference in communities. And that's been um, something that I'm getting a sampling of. Um, and it's hard. It's not easy. I don't often take time off. And then when I do, I feel guilty. And so these are things that I just kind of have to work with. Um, <clears throat> also, weirdly, um, strange transition when it comes to what's going on this summer, I'm getting ready for to go to space camp. Um, as part of being Colorado State Teacher of the Year for 2021, uh, we have a um, we have our own space camp session. I think it's like five days. We'll be in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, if you're in Bama, hit us up. Let us know. And um, even though I probably won't come out and visit a whole bunch of people because these uh, COVID cases in the South are scaring me a little bit, um, but I am happy to give you a shout out from social media um, if that works. Um, I'll be seeing some friends down there uh, who are fellow state teachers of the year. There are some of these friends that are just really amazing. And I'll also be appearing um, at a couple of different events. I will be keynoting the Colorado Council for Social Studies uh, Summer Conference. Um, I'll be talking about students' personal history through their names. Uh, I'll also be doing a workshop at the Teaching Black History Conference um, through the University of Missouri's Carter Center for Black History. Um, our friend LeGarrette King brought me this opportunity and I'm just incredibly blessed to have it. I also get to appear at the EduColor uh, Summer Summit and I'll be introducing my good friend Juliano Urturbe, National Teacher of the Year from the great state of Nevada and hopefully facilitating a Q&A. So I'm staying pretty busy. Um, <clears throat> but it's just nice to kind of take, you know, a breather and I'm learning to take a breather. I watched a lot of soccer, um, after my Denver Nuggets season was so disappointing to me, the injury to Jamal Murray and then Jamal Murray making friends with the Suns fan that beat up a Nuggets fan. I just, I'm struggling a lot with, with, uh, my Denver Nuggets right now. Uh, but fortunately there's been some interesting soccer to watch. The European championships have been fun. Uh, the Copa America has been fun. Uh, those will probably be finished by the time you're listening to this. So I'm going to give you my predictions. And when this episode drops, you'll be able to check my work. So I predict that England will lose to Italy 3-2. Um, not after extra time. I think, I think it's going to be a very open game. I love how the Italians are playing. They are more creative than I've seen them in previous generations. Super fun to watch. And then in the Copa America, I predict that Brazil will beat Argentina. I predicted it'll be 1-1 after regulation, and Brazil will win in kicks. But it was really interesting because, um, you know, I made myself take a break the other day and just lay down on the couch and watch um, watch the Rapids' second half. And it helps that the Rapids won and that they are a very good team at this point. But just like breathing feeling that weight off my chest and a sense of joy just kind of set back in. It doesn't take a lot to find that joy. Uh, Self-care is not a substitute for good policy that preserves the people working in your organization, um, but it can give you a little bit of respite and recharge you a little bit. Um, but you'll never hear me saying uh, self-care is the way to go. 
Well, folks, I think it's time to transition over to my interview with Miss Kimberly Dickstein Hughes, the New Jersey Teacher of the Year for 2020. Uh, Kimberly Dickstein Hughes, 2020 New Jersey State Teacher of the Year, teaches English language arts at Haddonfield Memorial High School. She earned her bachelor's and master's degrees from Rutgers University and teaches as an adjunct professor at Rowan University's College of Education. Her areas of interest include critical global literacies, culturally responsive teaching, and Shakespeare studies. Hughes has been awarded for her commitment to public service, selflessly contributing her time and effort to better her community. As New Jersey State Teacher of the Year, Hughes toured New Jersey public schools, served with the New Jersey Department of Education, and initiated stakeholder collaboration on teacher recruitment, professional learning, and youth voice. Hughes teaches through a social justice and anti-bias framework and believes educational equity can be achieved through radical compassion and collective action. So without any further ado, here's my interview with habitual disruptor Kimberly Dickstein Hughes, episode two. Hope you enjoy. What's up, my people? Welcome back to Habitually Disruptive. I am Gerardo Munoz, and I am here with a guest that I've been trying to get for a good amount of time. Um, I'm here with 2020 New Jersey State Teacher of the Year, Kimberly Dickstein Hughes. What's up, Kimberly? Hello, Gerardo. Thank you for having me. Oh, man. Thank you for coming. Um, and also, thank you for tolerating the reschedules and all that <laughs> stuff that we had to do. Um, Kimberly's in the unfortunate situation of still working right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not trying to stunt on you, but I like finally got myself moving around 10 o'clock this morning um, and got that kind of going. But as, as you so know, cool. though, as you know, the work of a state teacher of the year is never over, is it? There's always something. Yeah. <laughs> and you stayed really busy, uh, for sure. So let, let's let's just dig right into it. Um, really excited for this conversation. Um, you have been a disruptor. You have been a person that is kind of pushing on a whole lot of things. And this conversation today, I'm just really looking forward to hearing about all this stuff that you're doing. So hopefully we can get it in with the time that we have. Otherwise, um, you know, I'm not against having a part two at some other point and kind of getting in there. Um, but yeah, let's let's kind of get into it. So why did you choose to become a teacher? This always really interests me. And then why your subject? I don't talk to a whole lot of folks who are also high school teachers. And I feel like the high school path is always kind of unique because it has to do with where you teach, who you teach and what you teach them. And so tell me about that. Yeah. So I became a teacher because I wanted to give back to my community. And that's something that I always lean into. And, you know, that's my why from the beginning. They wanted to give back. I wanted to give back to society as a public servant. I wanted mm. uh, to, to give um, what I had been given. Um, and that was really uh, a profound realization for me pretty early in college. I know I, I had originally gone down a path of law and, and policy making um, and really found a place um, in teaching that I couldn't achieve there. 
And that was really impacting the lives of individuals every single day. Um, and I do believe like the course of my career has proven that true. And I'm really grateful mm. that I have recognized that. And so that's why I became a teacher. I had great yeah. teachers and, and folks really guiding me um, and, and nurturing also like my growth. And so why English language arts and high school? Now that's a whole other story. So, <laughs> so for me, I, I suppose I'll start with why high school. Uh, so I had experienced, uh, I think a really significant trauma during my high school experience. My best friend okay. was diagnosed with cancer in the first week of our sophomore year of high school. Oh, wow. And uh, she was given four months to live and Alicia fought her battle with cancer for 13 months and passed away yeah. a month into our junior year of high school. And that's a really formative time. Yeah. Um, and I really leaned on my teachers. I was most likely, Gerardo, really depressed. I had yeah. really struggled during that time, but I thrived in school. And so yeah. I went 100 in school, but school was an outlet for me to to not not only cope, um, but to thrive um, when I was yeah. struggling to do it on my own. And so for me, being in this place now is that like I can be that person that so many teachers were for me. Yeah. And so that's why high school. Uh, I think I come back here all the time because mm. um, I, I can be that person that that I needed. Yeah. Um, that, and that's the that's deep because I think like, especially in my, my daughter is 16 years old and, you know, I think about, um, she, she hasn't yet experienced what you experienced with your friend Alicia. And, um, that was really also, as I was kind of like reading up on you before this conversation that, you know, kind of your openness about how impactful, um, that, that time in your life was, I think is really powerful. And, you know, we, we have, we have 16 year olds who are living through, um, you know, a, a global trauma that I think Absolutely. it's going to take us a long time to work through. And so, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, it gives you a, a chance to be that support, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think about, you know, so after Alicia passed, her parents started a nonprofit called the Alicia Rose Victorious Foundation. And our goal is to improve the quality of life of teens with life-threatening illnesses. So we're in over 100 wow. hospitals across the nation. Oh, we sponsor awesome. programs, movie nights, we install teen lounges, we do art therapy programming with our Alicia's art cart. But what that really did for me was, you know, I've I've been forced to be open about that trauma. And I don't know if it weren't for this work that I would be able to talk about it. If I weren't in front of teenagers, would I be able to talk about it? And I think right. in many ways, sacrificed a bit of myself, you know, in that way to say like, I could help others know my story. And when I look yeah. at my students, I think about all the things that I don't know about them. And yeah. so I really think there's a lot of power in sharing and that, and so that's why I came back to high school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, love, I love that statement. Never got out back. of high school. <laughs> I came back. I came yeah. back. Um, and English language arts is, for me, uh, the closest we can get to understanding our collective humanity. Mm. And I love the questions that we can ask in an English language arts classroom yeah. and where we can go and what we can discover. And it's always new. You can begin yeah. a new in an English language arts classroom and have so much discovery. Like that's what's so exciting to me. And 
I took this course at Rutgers where I went for undergrad and graduate school called Shakespeare and race uh, and looking and using oh, critical wow. race theory and looking, at, looking through that lens at the canon at Shakespeare's works. And it was really eye-opening for me. Yeah. What did it tell you? That's really interesting. Uh, it, it, it told me, I mean, Shakespeare's texts are for our time. It's for us to understand our time. Yeah. And that Shakespeare didn't get it all, always get it right. And that right. Shakespeare's plays can take the criticism. Yeah. Like, oh, interesting. Can take it. The plays can take it and you can push back and you can ask hard questions and, and you can really explore human dignity and explore empathy through those texts. And that course really did, sh did shift how I viewed the humanities. And that mm. course, uh, quite a few world literature courses, and I also loved the environment in English language arts classrooms. I mean, that was a place where, you know, you could uh, trans transcend where you were in that moment. Yeah. And I was a kid who didn't have access to a lot of travel growing up. And yeah. so, like my life was really New Jersey through and yeah. through <laughs> until I went to I didn't even went to college in New Jersey. So my whole life was New Jersey. Yeah. And so, but I could explore the world through books and that was more exciting than anything else I mm. could open up. Uh, totally. And that's the path they went down. So those are yeah. all the reasons I became a teacher, why ELA, and why high school. I think I checked all those boxes. I think you did. I think you did because, you know, there's a rubric for this podcast, and I have to make sure that you're well, proficient. Before we uh, before we agree to publish this, <laughs> no, I mean, it, you know, you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago um, about this experience of teaching Taming of the Shrew to a group of young men. Am I right? Was it that Correct. it was so? Um, because this is the habitually disruptive podcast. Could could you could you just very briefly talk a little bit about how? Because so let me tell you what's in my brain right now. Um, yes. I don't always tell my students what's in my brain and that confuses them at times, but here's what's in my brain right now. So on Twitter, which is where all meaningful things happen in education, mm -hmm. yeah, of um, course. <laughs> of course, there's this kind of raging debate around the canon, right? Mm -hmm. um, where folks have kind of planted their flags on one side or the other. They, they're, you know, there's the abolish the canon and then there's the, the canon is everything in the study mm -hmm. of literature. And, um, and that conversation that you and I had seems to really challenge that notion that the canon is one thing. And it Correct. took me back to a conversation on the Two Dope Teachers in a Mic podcast that Kevin and I had with Cornelius Minor when he said, well, it's not it's not just uh, it's not just that we don't want Jane Eyre to be taught. It's that what what we want is for like there's an there's an opportunity to make Jane Eyre relevant to folks. Correct. Correct. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that experience you had with Taming of the Shrew, kind of like masculinity and like those kinds of things? Yeah, so the context of that, my students were actually reading eight plays at once within the class. Yeah. And there was okay. a small group of four students reading Taming of the Shrew, but I oh, have gotcha. taught Taming of the Shrew to the whole, the whole class uh, in the past. But this particular experience I'll speak to, the group was two boys, two girls um, and it was a really interesting conversation because the students who identified as male in that group uh, really took issue with the end of the play, as did the female students 
but it really did bother them. At the end of the play, Kate, who Petruccio, essentially, he's this, this man who is to tame or control Kate, who is an assertive woman, but considered difficult, right? Yep. Uh, and uh, the girls really connected with Kate, and they were so excited by her character. Yeah, um, and girl how boss. She was back. Yeah, they were. They were. She was girl boss, and they were so into it. And and the boys in the story like find the story funny. Um, but the end of the play, that you know, they do get married, and he yep. does. It, he does tame her in the sense the final scene is that there is a bet and there's a bet that uh, among the three gentlemen that who has the tamest wife and they all put money down and Kate gives this really long speech about how wives should obey their husbands. (laughs) Uh, And the four of them were really alarmed by this speech and and as opposed to having the girls speak first, I asked the, the two boys to speak first. And they're telling me all the reasons why they were disappointed and, and working through that. And just listening to them speak and watching my girls hear their peers listen to that conversation was so reaffirming, but also, how do I say this? Uh, <laughs> eye-opening for them too. I think that yeah. they had understanding of the boys in their class and their view of the world that might have been different and like you yep. saw shit. and i think to me like that moment in the play forced the boys to say this is not okay like yeah. this is not right and to and to to align and stand with women right yep. and with the girls and say yeah this wasn't cool and this yeah, was this not like- <laughs> and this is and like and i stand with you and and I thought like that is what's so powerful about teaching that text yeah. is because we can look at right now, we can look at things like the Me Too movement, we can look at our world as a whole, we can look at like the transport sports, sports debate and, yep. and looking yep. at the head of girls play and use that dialogue and say, Okay, yeah. well, how is that how is that relevant to now? How are we seeing that in our world? And, like, yeah. where do we start? Yeah. And so, like, how could you rewrite that speech and think to yourself, okay, what's not working here? Yeah. Uh, and it allows for some really, and I know that's, I'm kind of in the weeds a little bit. But no, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> I'm it here for it. Make, um, it does. It does make them see each other differently. Yeah. And then I said to them, okay, well, now, like, you're reading it on the page, but what if you had Kate reading it sarcastically? And she reads that speech sarcastically. Because Shakespeare doesn't like, give like yeah, space there's directions. No there, yeah, there's, there no, there's no exit, way. To, exit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> my, my favorite is this is a this is a tangent, but my favorite is in the Tempest, where like there's this long soliloquy given, and then the stage direction is exit pursued by a bear, and it's oh. like. <laughs> Where did the yeah, bear come that, from? That, I, know, I love you, but I'm going to correct you for all future use. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> it's the Winter's Tale. <laughs> it's the Winter's Tale. Really? I didn't read the Winter's Tale. Oh That's no! But, no, but it's okay because that is the best line. But you're okay. totally right. now. Listen, I'm helping okay, you out. So I'll do that right. No, I appreciate it. Gotcha, I appreciate gotcha. it. No, yes, thank um, you. <laughs> and and but it is the best. It is the best stage direction of all time. Yes. Oh, it's great. <laughs> so, so, so what into. So what ended so, up happening is so you you were so, talking so about that. I was like, so so how does then tone like how does context then shift your understanding of the play? And we talked about like how we say X, Y, or Z matters, and in the context of 
whatever experience it might be or the world you're in, right? How does that shift your understanding of the yeah. play? Like, what could it, and what is he trying to say too? He's writing this play during Queen Elizabeth's reign, right? Who did not marry because she did not want to lose her power to a husband, yep. right? Like, what is Shakespeare doing there, right? Yeah. Like, she wouldn't have been cool with that. So in no way could that have been actually a serious speech that women should obey their husbands. Wow. Like, so, so this idea was like, oh, well now, like if she's saying this sarcastically and she and her husband are both in on this bet, then do they both win? Like, are mm. they mocking the system right. and saying, like they're making everyone else a fool because then they just got all the money at the end of the play right. because That's she gave right. this speech. Yeah. And there's like, we know how this system works and we're going to play it so we can win. That's dope. How do I play that system? And like, yeah. and Shakespeare constantly does little things like that. And mm -hmm. they're like, oh, dang. Like, yeah. wow. All right. That's a whole other world. Yeah. And so he's constantly pushing at his world. And I think he constantly pushes at our world to make us think critically about ourselves and our surroundings. And, and he did it in such a way that there's nuance. Uh, which allows for discussion. It allows for opinion. It allows for research. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, I'm not in an abolish the canon. Like I, and I am not in a, and I'm holding it on this high pedestal If anything. Yeah. Like I want us to make it work, like make yeah. it work yeah. and also make it work in partnership with other texts. Yeah. Like let's start partnering texts. Right. Yeah. So there's absolutely no reason why we have to, you know, plant our flags. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I really do think there's a lot of room for regulation. So sure. I guess I'm in the middle of that battlefield. Yeah, uh, for and, sure. So a question for you. <laughs> so the other, no, the, the other thing that kind of comes to mind is that um, you're in New Jersey. I'm in Colorado. We have listeners mm -hmm. across the country um, and different schools, different districts have different like levels of standardization when it comes to what's taught what where you teach is are there prescribed like texts that every kid needs to read how much choice do you have yes and no gotcha. <laughs> so in my in my shakespeare course specifically it's an elective so i can read i can teach any play okay in, but it's, yeah i also partner my texts that I teach also in Greek drama with a lot of contemporary texts. So for instance, um, I taught Oedipus the King this fall and I partnered it with Luis Alfaro's Oedipus El Rey, which is the Chicano version oh, okay. of, of Oedipus and yeah. it's in LA and it was really powerful. Yep. And so yep. for my students, like that's to me disrupting my curriculum in a way yep. that here is what is on the map. Yep. And here are all the paths we're going to take to actually get there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we can go on, on these tangents. Yeah. Um, I also taught Oedipus at Colonus, but I also taught gospel at Colonus alongside oh, yeah. it. Yep. Gospel version of it. And yeah. so that was really powerful. And then we talked about the Pentecostal church. And so that to me is, again, like we have to get from A to B, but you know, there's like A1 and A2 and A3 and like there's right. lots of, like, it's on a hike, right? Like there's all, you have your main trail, but That's there's right. all those other like small paths that will also take you there. And so that to me is like a little, I'm disrupting the plan, right? But uh, it gets us there. Uh, and yeah. 
And so uh, we do have some required texts, but we do have the freedom if the texts are approved, right, by the board to partner those texts. So yeah. uh, again, uh, I've, I've done a lot of where if I haven't had a book approved, I use a lot of excerpts of texts, a lot yeah. of poetry to partner. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. I love Teach Living Poets. It's a great resource. My yeah. colleague to it and it has really shifted how I teach. And so that's been a great way to partner yeah. uh, and, and disrupt the canon. Uh, I think we should, we should totally shake it up. Um, our world's constantly forcing us to do that. Yeah, no, thanks for going on that tangent with me. It's always pretty interesting. Like, you know, and obviously um, the the Twitter comment was very tongue in cheek, but the idea, you know, is that we, we have these discussions, we have these really, you know, sort of animated and angry exchanges without really understanding what folks context is and the way that certain things are being delivered. And, um, you know, it's if 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 a situation is like yours where there are required texts and then mm -hmm. text other texts can be used if they're approved. Right. Then yeah. then the, the idea of just abolishing the canon is just not super realistic if you want to keep your job. Um, <laughs> And I also argue there's something to be said about cultural capital. And mm -hmm. I think I always talk to my students, like we buy and trade in this exchange of culture and expanding our culture. And the idea is we can share cultures and we can manipulate that. And so mm -hmm. I think taking the canon and partnering it and diversifying it is really useful. And yeah. so, and we're doing that all the time, right? Like you and I are talking about the Sixers and the and and the Nuggets, and like that to me is also cultural yeah. capital, right? It's yep, like a part absolutely. of the experience. And so, all of that has value. I don't think we should dismiss that because then we're doing our students a disservice by making that decision for them. Yeah. And so, I think it's important to uh, expose them to as much as possible. Um, as everything here is an introduction, I think, in high school. Yeah. Right, like this is an introduction, um, and we have to activate their curiosity. We have to activate their ideas. We have to activate what's inside each student for them to continue learning and ignite that that enthusiasm for exploration. Right. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, yeah, no, thanks. I know that wasn't one of the scripted questions, but I I kind of <laughs> couldn't resist. Um, yeah, no, my English teachers were my favorite teachers in high school. You know, and oh, another time I'll. I'll tell a story about how if somebody had told teenage me that I was going to be a history teacher and that I would be state teacher of the year as a history teacher and then I would be nominated as national history teacher of the year, I would have laughed at them and said history is stupid. These teachers are annoying and like it's so boring. Like, why would I do that? So, you know, uh, but my English teachers uh, were always real ones. Um, so I want to kind of get into, into this other, this, this aspect of your pedagogy that I think is, uh, I, I just, you know, it really resonates with me, um, because the, the way that traditional classroom teaching has been formed is that you come in, you teach the children to do things. It's Paulo Freire's, uh, banking notion of education, where I'm going to give you everything you need, you yeah. need to survive in my class. And then you're going to give it back to me to prove to me that you survived. Um, your statement of professional purpose from your bio, from the 2020, uh, state teacher of the year, uh, says that you want to help those around you to activate their own ideas and that compassion and spirited inquiry can make a difference. Um, I want to, so is this kind of who Kimberly was on day one, or did you come to this kind of perspective on working with young people? 
like later and, it, and if so how did that happen yeah because I was like the stone teaching patriarch. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be stand and deliver. I'm gonna be the great debaters. Like, and yeah. and then you know, I had some experiences within my profession that really caused a shift in me. So I'm just curious as to um, how that worked for you. No, I, I believe I came to the, to this profession with this understanding. Nice. I was really fortunate to be enrolled in a program for four years in high school called gifted and talented. Yeah. And the entire course was designed around our interests and our exploration. Yep. And, and, you know, I learned blooms and Maslow in my ninth grade year. Oh, yeah. and, we learned, and essentially I learned through the process of metacognition starting in ninth grade and the program continued through 12th grade. And yeah. so I really have to give credit to my gifted and talented teachers, Mr. Fulton and Mrs. Rabin, because yeah. shout, out. shout out to them. And, and I pushed back. I pushed back real hard. <laughs> and that this might be annoying me. I remember we, we spent a lot of time on blooms really early. And I remember raising my hand one day and was like, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to learn about how we learn? Like, why can't I just learn? <laughs> <laughs> conversation because I had never really spoken out like that, but I was just, I don't know. I was, I, I just was getting frustrated. I was because I had to explain how I was learning everything. Yeah, yeah. And we had to do these really in-depth projects our freshman year uh, through all of the hierarchy of blooms and then analyze our choices. And so yeah. <laughs> however, once I, you know, accepted that this was my path, uh, <laughs> It really framed my 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 worldview and my lens, and so I came to this profession to not only grow as an individual, as a human being, because I, I wanted to pursue a line of work where I would always experience growth. Yeah, and I, and I knew that would happen in this profession, yeah. but I did. I mean, I've always wanted to know that. In my classroom, we activate our own ideas. We learn how to think for ourselves and we, yeah. and we learn how to consider all factors. And that if we can be compassionate, if we can put empathy in action, and yeah. it, we can really make a difference from the four walls of our learning space and beyond. And for right. me, spirited inquiry is that enthusiasm of discovery, of exploration. And yeah. you only really get that when you're activating your own thought and your own idea. And yeah. so that to me is how I approach every unit. That's how I approach all of my work in the community. If anything, I think that activating your own ideas goes so far beyond actually just my relationship with my students, it's my relationship with parents, with my yep. colleagues, with the community organizations that yep. I work with, is that how do we, you know, if, if, you know, we can dream it, I believe it. <laughs> like, yeah, I think absolutely. It. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, yeah, I really, you know, I can't say... Um, that there was this definitive moment. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things that I have been able to accomplish through through this lens, though, that have, for me, reaffirmed that this is this is the way, that yeah. this is the way um, to invest in others. And it might not always look like a traditional classroom. No. <laughs> and we might, get, we might get off task yep. of what is on the lesson plan or what That's is right. on 
this. However, what we're doing is we're exploring a process that's yeah. making us better and stronger. And this is not a guarantee of success. This is a, right. a guarantee of growth. And Ooh. Ooh. that's not what a guarantee of success, about. but it is a guarantee of growth. I love that. So, so yeah, so I'm glad that that resonates with you, man, because I think it's good work. <laughs> yeah. I think it's working. I think it's working. And, and it probably speaks to the different um, experiences that you and I had in education. And, um, and, and I think that, you, you know, I wonder if, um, if you've been in touch with those teachers that had you in that class and, you know, where, cause for me, it would be so powerful to know that literally this person that was in my classroom is taking the things they learned in my classroom and bringing them to more kids. And I, I just think that that's like, that's like, that's like a teacher's dream come true. Yeah. Luckily I have, I, I'm very grateful that I work, you know, I, I do work 20 minutes from the high school that I attended. Yep. And then also there's Facebook. <laughs> so oh, of, yep. it, man, it keeps you so connected and yeah. Mrs. Rubin, you know, she moved away. She lives in Florida now. And uh, and just really random side note, just such a silly thing. I was married yeah. four days before I was named state teacher of the year. Oh, and wow. So pretty <laughs> wild week for me. And Mrs. Rabin and I had connected on Facebook a few months earlier. She had just gotten on. Uh, she's retired now. And so the day of my wedding, she actually called me on Facebook phone call. Oh yeah. 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 Facebook. <laughs> I, I, and I had known, I had known that I was the state teacher of the year. And so I answered my phone at 6am the day I was getting married. Cause I saw, I was like, I'm going to answer this. It's Mrs. Raven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting married today. And I guess she, you know, in her excitement, I was like, and also in four days, I'm going to be the state teacher of the year. And I really want you to know that. Oh, that's amazing. So yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That that's amazing. I feel like my middle school teachers would have a different sort of shock and amazement experience. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna do one more question, then we'll take a quick break. Um, so let's talk about that state teacher of the year thing. So how did that like you're you're a person with a lot of perspective? I've I've just noticed over um, the last few weeks we've been communicating. So you know how how did that recognition feel and um to what extent do you feel like your own like life has has changed since then yeah asking for a friend <laughs> <laughs> you know i i want to say and i i've said many times that it was a wild ride that path to state yeah. teacher of the year and you are you are humbled by that honor and yeah. it is really surreal when you are named the state teacher of the year and but I look back on it and I think to myself, and I, I don't want to deny myself that, that I had earned that. Right. And, and we put in, educators put in a lot of work. We all do. Yeah. And, and when I look back on that, being named the teacher of the year was a reflection of all of the work that I had put in, not just since the beginning of my career, but I'd like to say since I entered public schools okay. <laughs> kindergarten, you know yeah. i've been putting in the work i've been learning about how to learn yeah. through through both failure and success and through all of that growth and it was a reflection of all that had culminated and yeah. so and i have i have done some pretty good pretty big things uh, as an educator and and as i would say a humanitarian and as someone who 
goes beyond the book. Uh, I feel really strongly about going beyond the book and it's not enough to lament the world's woes uh, from a text. Uh, we have to do something. And so yeah. for me, like that was a reflection of an, of work and honoring that work. And so, so now, but I think back, like when I felt it was like surreal and wild, but looking yeah. back a, a year and a half, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, it was a reflection of everything I had pulled together and, and all the people who were behind me and a part of my mm. journey. Yeah. And so we can't dismiss that. And I think nope. that's really, powerful. Uh, for, for me, my life has, for the last year and a half has really changed a lot in the sense that I am recording a podcast with my new friend from Colorado. There you go. And I had <laughs> anticipated that conversation. I, for 12 weeks, hosted and produced a television program on PBS. Never would have imagined that happening. Oh man, that was so cool. Yeah, yeah I got to see some you know? of those videos. Yeah, so dope. It, so it dope. was wild. And that, and that to me was like, well, how do we meet our most vulnerable learners and their needs during a really unconventional time yeah, no uh, and outside of, you know, the norm was essential. And I think back to all of these experiences I had as state teacher of the year and would not have happened if, if I had not been elevated and amplified. And that's why I think these programs are so valuable. And I think every educator deserves recognition and honor totally. and the course of their career should be tapped in some which way or form. And as an honored educator, as the state teacher of the year, I just feel really blessed. Yeah. And I also feel, but I also feel the weight of responsibility. And yeah. I feel that it is on me at this point to continue this work in whatever way possible. And that could mean being habitually disruptive in my classroom more often than not. Yeah. And, and that's what it could mean. I could, there could be no more award. There could be no more, no more podcasts, no more, no more blogs, no more anything, no one knocking yep. on my door in the time. Yep. That, what that also means is that, you know, don't talk about it, be about it. I got to be about it every single day oh, yeah. for my kid. And I really, this reinvigorated in me to be a really good teacher. Yeah and and try to honor that that's what this has meant to me that's awesome yeah and um you know i i've i've loved just meeting amazing people like you um and like so many others um from across the country that uh, you know it's just so much fun to be in community with them no it's awesome uh we're gonna take a quick break pay some bills keep the lights <laughs> on you are listening to habitually disruptive <laughs> this far into the episode, perhaps you are enjoying this remix conversation about power, culture, and education. And if that's the case, please consider joining others like you, educators, community leaders, activists, scholars, artists, and youth by supporting the Two Dope Teachers in a Mic podcast and productions on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can get on-air shout-outs, sneak previews, and early released episodes, insider information on the happenings in Two Dope Nations, and many other small benefits. The greatest benefit, though, is you enable us to keep bringing the fire. Because of people like you, we have expanded to two podcasts with the exit interview taking flight and forcing hard conversations about attacks on black educators. And we've added new features, including 
including episode transcripts and a revamped website, all because of listeners like you. But that's just the beginning. Your support will open up new possibilities for us and for the communities we represent at And at the $15 per month level, you receive a sticker. Yes, folks, a sticker. To support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash teachers. That's patreon.com slash teachers. Hey, what's up, people? This is Gerardo Munoz, 2021 Colorado State Teacher of the Year, and you're on Habitually Disruptive, talking to Kimberly Dickstein Hughes, 2020 New Jersey State Teacher of the Year. Uh, Kimberly, thanks for being here with me today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so uh, we touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, you know, I was I was doing my research, and I saw that you got honored at a Sixers game and um, at first I was kind of like, what are you doing at a Sixers game? You're from New <laughs> Jersey. Like you should be rooting for the Nets who are no longer there, but still. And then you kind of gave me a geography lesson and it totally makes sense. So the thing that um, that's, you know, so I, I'm I, I'm still sad that the Nuggets are no longer in the playoffs. I, I do want you to know that the Sixers are actually my Eastern Conference team because you got to have a team in both conferences, um, you know, in the eventuality that the MVP gets ejected from a game and you lose the series. Um, <laughs> love Jokic. Uh, so the Sixers had this thing when they were stockpiling draft picks and when they were losing a lot of games, but they were drafting guys like Joel Embiid and drafting guys like, um, like Ben Simmons and drafting guys like, who is the guard, uh, Markel Fultz and these guys. And, you know, they're not winning any games and guys are hurt a lot. Um, Nerland's Noel, um, but trust the process. Um, and I kind of want to know about the philosophy of trusting the process in your path, because teaching is not the kind of thing that you get trained to do. And then you're an expert your first year. Um, I actually don't think I got good at teaching until I mean, that's to be determined, right? Like I'm 22 <laughs> years and counting. I still don't feel like I'm very good at this. Um, but so what is trusting the pro? Like, is that a philosophy that also kind of like resonates with you? Absolutely. I think I also use the trust the process philosophy in all of my classes. And it might be said more often than not, um, <laughs> but we are tackling uh, any collective challenge so yeah. trust the i mean process. i say it when i don't know where i'm going with something it's like you know what y'all trust the process trust the yes. process. i don't know where we're going but we're gonna get there, it's we're gonna get there. like it's become something i think that's right nation <laughs> has adopted right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so you had already gone through this like tanking philosophy and like this idea have you tanked the school year before have you tanked yeah. it and said you know what it's just next year I have had some years where I was like, this is for growth. Like this yeah, was that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. right. I, I've not tanked an entire school growth. year. I have tanked a Monday here and there. Yes. <laughs> and you always remember that one seventh of your life is is made of Mondays. So I always tell Ooh, people Oh God. Well, I don't know why I have to get violent on this podcast. Like, <laughs> It's just hate. Right? <laughs> anyway, so but I think trust the process 
is about making what you believe are the right decisions. And even if they aren't always successful or reach the outcome that you had expected, you believe them to be right and you endure. And so we endured in South Jersey, in Philadelphia, and like we endured. And and now we're two for yeah. two, the Atlanta uh, Hawks right now. And, yeah, and yeah, so we're yeah. there. So anyway, from, uh, okay, all right. So that oh, is that. I'm, I'm writing this down, actually. <laughs> okay, this is where we are right now. So we're tied in that conference. But anyway, all right, so. Yep, yep, yep. All right. So anyway, uh, for me, I feel that entering the profession like was the right decision for me my first year of teaching was very difficult and i had really questioned my process after that <laughs> year where i was like what did it's i like your life process here? not so much just your professional process but in life yeah, am i doing the right everything. thing <laughs> i don't even remember my first year no so it, I, totally i'm pretty sure i didn't have one I, I don't think i had a first year i i'm just i'm glad i didn't keep track of how many nights i cried <laughs> <laughs> it was challenging i mean yeah. nothing prepares you for answering a thousand questions in a day nothing prepares True. you for the weight that you carry right when you learn x y or z about a student and your heart breaks yeah. There's no course in no, that. That's There's right. That's right. In a graduate school of education. And yep. so, and so for me, that first year was really challenging. And at the end of my first year of teaching, I had found out uh, that because of budget constraints, all of the first year teachers were going to be let go. Bruh. And I was like, what? But then I was happy, Gerardo. Oh my God. I was like, oh my goodness, freedom. I don't have to make this decision <laughs> myself. Like, she got like, bailed out. You don't have to quit now. You can just be like, oh, they let me go. So. And mind you, I had student taught at this school. Like I student taught here and had great student teaching experience. It was lovely. Had a great connection with my students, taught seniors. The next year had a similar schedule, miserable. Then I'm like, okay, right? This was meant to be. Maybe I can go to law school now or do yeah, something there you go. And then I find out two weeks later, my principal comes up to me and he's like, Kim, uh, all of the first year teachers are being kept on. Like, you know, don't, uh, you can breathe now. And Yay. I start, falling, okay. I, I start oh, no. crying in front of my <laughs> Like, oh my gosh. Like I, I'm like, I don't have the ability to say no. And that's something 13 years <sighs> of teaching I'm working on. Like, you know, I can't say I've mastered it. So that was year one, right? But that's like, yep. so I'm like, okay, I'm, summer happens. I travel that summer. I live my life. I take a break, come back year two, and year two is better. And yeah. I start to have a little more of an understanding of X, Y, and Z. I know where I'm going with the books. Uh, I'm having different connections with my students. So year two, I'm like, okay, I can do that. So not great, but good. Sure, sure. Uh, year three, I had faith in myself and I had continued on and I applied during that year to uh, a, an NEH grant, a National Endowment for the Humanities, and yeah. earned that for the Folger Shakespeare Library's four-week teaching Shakespeare Institute in Washington, D.C. So it's 25 yeah. teachers from across the country came together to study Shakespeare and to really push back on the canon, yeah. what, like literally a block from the Capitol building. And wow. so the Folger Shakespeare Library is yeah. one of the premier institutions of Shakespeare studies. Yep. 
And so that to me was like part of trusting the process. Like now, okay, investing in myself as an educator and finding professional development in my interests or in, and I really came to that from the course I took in college, Shakespeare and Race. I took that one course with Dr. Emily Bartels, and then I actually took multiple courses with her. But that specific course for me then put me on this path. And so then over the years, I continued that. So then I applied to an English-speaking union grant to study Shakespeare and politics and English poetry at Oxford. And I did that for a month at first. Oh. So that was oh it's, yeah it's such a small little institution <laughs> uh, so and so and then I did it again um, and and I brought all of that back home and started to change my teaching and 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 collaborate with my colleagues differently and so that to me and each year came with a new confidence and that I didn't have to know everything um, I had to know what I knew right yeah uh, and and I had to be open to change. And that was exciting. Each new opportunity, I grew. And so now I guess I'm the Joel Embiid of teachers, right? <laughs> so uh, even though I, I can't say I I hit his height, but, uh, <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, right? symbolically, symbolically, though, you know, like right? definitely in, in terms of teachers in the country, you're, you're definitely yeah, seven foot I two care. with a great outside <laughs> shot. And <laughs> You know? well, I, mean, I guess the outside shot is is being disruptive and so yeah. but but in that all that success right like I have moments where like I still questions like at, at the end of my in the middle of my seventh year Toronto I was I had two like really awesome professional experiences behind me I presented at uh, a national conference for NCTE with the Folger Shakespeare Library, yeah. but I feel like there was something missing and I was getting the seven year itch. So I applied to the Peace Corps. I applied no. to the Peace Corps and I, and I applied for uh, a position for teaching educators. I wanted to be a teacher's teacher. And I applied, I got, I wanted to be in the Pacific, I got the Philippines yeah. and wow. I got it. I got it. And wow. then I had seven days to decide. Yep. <laughs> this in the longest seven days and it kind of reminds me of at the end of my first year right where my principal was like yep, you don't you have you're losing your job, your job. <laughs> I was like, getting it and yeah. I remember the seven days I looked at my students differently and I looked at the work that I was doing and I was like everything that I could ever do matters the most here and wow. and I was just looking out and everything looked different in those seven days wow and, and, and oh, that's, deep. that's mad deep. it was, it was a really surreal experience. I remember it because when I had said no to the Peace Corps, I was saying yes to the work that I was doing here. Yeah. And, and then everything sort of changed. I wanted everything to, everything to matter. Like spirited inquiry was different. Uh, yeah. The outcomes of our work was different. It was about placing an emphasis on, uh, placing an emphasis on process, not product yeah. and taking risks and exploring everything and i just felt so alive after saying yeah. no to what would have been a really incredible experience right. <laughs> and, right. uh but then i to be honest like i think that the most incredible experiences that i've ever had have been in a209 like i've been in my classroom yeah. and that sounds really, really scripted and but no it actually like, doesn't it actually <laughs> doesn't at all <laughs> I was just, it's really, and you know, I've had the good fortune in my adult life to, to really see the world and yeah. 
that was something that mattered to me. Uh, and, you know, my husband who was in the Peace Corps in Kenya, yeah. you know, he does a lot of work in East and West Africa and, and we've done a lot of traveling. And, but for me, like the most exciting work I do is right here. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that I stayed because it's been also enabled me to move a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Able to move uh, in that way. So, yeah. So I continued with my shake. I went to Utah Shakespeare Festival, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, did some intensive workshops there. Yeah. Uh, and then through the Teacher of the Year program, have been able to connect with folks. So it's going to trust the process is that yeah. I'm making decisions <laughs> for myself and for my community, regardless of the outcomes in the moment. Yeah. But I have to trust that we can and that anything is possible. And no, I think that's a win. I think that's a win. I totally agree. You know, there's echoes of, you know, um, if you're familiar with Harry Wong in the first days of school, like, so this was a book I was given when I started teaching in the late 20th century. Um, <laughs> that's why I like to tell people I started teaching in the late 1900s. Um, and it's called the first days of school. And he's got this super practical and human, like, you know, we're talking about, you know, humanizing pedagogy in, in my world and in my graduate studies right now. Um, but he was doing human humanizing pedagogy before it had a name. And yeah. uh, in the dedication, he he dedicates it to his parents where he said his parents are Korean immigrants. And he says that, you know, this is dedicated to my parents who wanted to me, me to be a doctor and a lawyer. I um, I transcended all of their hopes and dreams. I became a teacher. And I think your choice, because in all and I'll cop to this, like when when I read that you had chosen not to do the Peace Corps in favor of staying in the classroom, um, in my mind, it was like, dang, something must have went real wrong, you know, and um, because I think that we've all internalized this um, this low opinion of teachers, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, and, yeah. and that teaching is really something you should use to do something better. And you've kind of flipped that script a little script a little bit saying, oh, yeah. well, I want to, I wanted to make a difference. Um, and this is actually the space where I'm best suited to make a difference. I, and, and for me too, Gerardo, as a state teacher of the year, I get that question all the time. Well, what are you doing next? And I was like, well, my class, like, you know, the school year begins in September and yeah. Start with things fall apart with Chinua Achebe. There, there you go. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and, and that that brings me joy, you know. And yep. and I with that is like transcending expectation. I think that we do a real disservice to this entire country and the world at large yeah. to perpetuate that narrative, and that that someone's just a teacher. If anything, there is nothing that you can do that is greater. No. Uh, and really, and I, and you've been in the classroom longer than I have. And when I think about educating the whole child and humanizing pedagogy, when you, when you say that, when I think about culturally responsive teaching, I mean, these are all the things that I've been doing since day one. And I'm not saying yeah. like, look at look at me. What I'm saying sure, is sure, sure. good teaching is recognizing that we have humans in front of us. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, yeah. And, and we have <laughs> to do some, some folks struggle with that concept. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> right? But I yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, we have humans in front of us and we have to do our best to take care of the whole human. And, and sometimes that means throwing the curriculum out the window. Sometimes that means uh, changing the plan. Yeah. But that's in the best interest of the human. And that's what we need to prioritize. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I will say that um, I've, I've also gotten the question, what's next? But after mm -hmm. 22 years, I'm kind of like, I don't know, man, maybe something's next. <laughs> but I love it. I have, I have a great school. I have great colleagues. Yeah. I have the probably the most inspiring principal I've had in 22 years. So there's like a lot of really great things. And she would, we live in the same neighborhood. She would hunt me down if, if like I did not return next year. So <laughs> definitely be back next year. Um, so in terms of this, um, of making the difference and activating mm -hmm. one's own ideas, uh, ideas in order to make a difference, I wasn't even sure how to like fashion this question because when yeah. we talked a few weeks ago, it was clear that this was such a powerful experience for you and for your students. So just tell me about Garang Book. Yeah, you got it, man. Uh, so Garang uh, Book uh, is a man who has changed not only my life, but the lives of my students and this community as a whole. And I would argue uh, the world at large. So in 2015, which is the year after I had applied to the Peace Corps, uh, oh. so context to go back, mm -hmm. I had started a new curriculum teaching world literature to our accelerated sophomores. Yeah. And so uh, the summer reading was a long way gone, memoirs oh, of a and oh. really powerful text. Yeah. And I had, I've been involved with Model United Nations since I was in ninth grade. And I did that in college and I ran that program. Yeah. Yeah. nonprofit for five years and that was really important work to me and the first brief i ever wrote this 30-page research paper in my first year of college was on children in armed conflict yeah. so taking that brain and that experience reading this memoir thinking about my kids in southern new jersey and thinking to myself there is going to be a disconnect yeah there's going to be there is going to be a way to access you know this this shared humanity, but I don't want them to lament the world's woes from a book and then turn the cover and go back to their world without worry. Yep. And so, so I want it to matter. And so the, the true story is that I'm actually at a wedding Labor Day weekend and I'm reading my own summer reading a week before school starts. Right. <laughs> and my friend, my husband's friend, sees me reading this book and on the cover is a child soldier. And he asks me about the book and he's like, you know, someone I had worked with at the Carter Center in South Sudan was rumored to be a child soldier and I'd be happy to connect you with him. He's a really great yeah. guy. I worked with him for a number of years. So I'd be like, love to connect with him. Oh so man, I would love that. 2015 and uh, I email Grung right away and I say, you know, I'd love for you to speak with my students and you know, we can talk in advance. I can my students yeah. draft their questions. A few days go by, I don't hear from him. He gets back to me and he's like, I, I would be open to speaking with your students. And we talk over Skype. He's at that time in Kenya. I'm giving you like the long version, but I'll quicken yeah. it up at some point. No, um, <laughs> I like this part of it because I, I think the relationship's important yeah. and none of this is random. Uh, this was, I think, all divine. Um, and, and there's lots of intervention here. So yeah. he's getting his bachelor's in Kenya at the time. Uh, my students draft questions. We get on this Skype call. This is 2015 in September. And he shares his story and he talks about the power of the pen and how the power of the pen is greater than the gun. And he talks about all that he had learned. He talks about how when he was five years old, the government came looking for the rebels and took all of 
the men of his village and put them into a farmhouse and burned them alive. And anyone who ran out, put them into the well and burned them. He talks about walking for years and then losing his mother. He talked about being captured by a militant group and then escaping. And then 11 years old, going to Ethiopia on his own with an uncle, so an adult friend, to find the rebels because he wanted revenge. And from age 11 to 16, he did fight the SPLA. And so at 16 years old, though, there was no, there was no white savior. There was no institution that saved him mm-hmm. He or, or took him out of war. So his general said to Garang that he wasn't smart. He was smart. And he started teaching him the alphabet and said, I don't want you to fight anymore. I want you to go to school. Hmm. And so at 16, his general was like, you're going to go learn now. Like, you're, this is your next step. Wow. And so... So then after that, he starts learning. He starts primary school at 16, uh, continues on for a few years, late 20s, finishes secondary. The Catholic diocese hire him. And then the Carter Center, which does a lot of work in in South Sudan, uh, tapped Grung to work with them as as a project manager on the ground. And that's how he worked with my husband's friends who after Peace Corps in Kenya, had worked in South Sudan. I tell this whole story because yeah. <laughs> I want people to understand he's someone who had overcome so many obstacles and then had worked for 15 to 20 years in humanitarian work with the Carter Center. So when yep. we met him, he had already accomplished all of these goals. Like he was very wow. accomplished for the work that we had together. Yeah. So he shares this story and you could hear a pin drop in my classroom. <laughs> Almost every essay, Gerardo, every the midterm, the final, every student wrote about Rang every single time. Wow. Uh, Because they couldn't, his his story was so powerful. And so we did it again the next year. I asked him if he'd be willing to do it again. He does it again the next year. This time, my students uh, had all written him thank you emails before I just did one email. And he wrote every single student back. Now, mind you, he lives in a village in South Sudan. So it took him three weeks to write back every student. And every day students would say, I got an email from Greg. Oh my gosh. So we did it again the next year. And and so my students were like, what can we do to help him? Right? Like what can we he wants to pursue graduate school? What can we do to advocate for him or open doors? So then this is where we kind of threw the curriculum out the window. We have writing lab. So during that time, my students were emailing professors, emailing uh, publishers, and they were saying, you know, we had this experience with this this man. Here's his story. We want to amplify his story. He does not have, he does not have access to the internet like we do or, or institutions like we do. And my students were emailing. I mean, and it was really impressive effort. And then the fighting broke back out in South Sudan. So at that point, Grang was like, I have to leave Juba. I have to go back to my village. And so we stopped our work because he, we didn't know what would happen. So the next fall, he applied to graduate school on his own. So he did it on his own to Emory. I wrote him a letter of recommendation Mm -hmm. and my students helped me edit it. We did it all together. It was very cool. And he gets in, he gets into Emory, which is the Harvard of the South. He gets in prestigious program and he is not given the financial assistance necessary to really complete that program so he did get scholarship but as an international student he doesn't get financial aid so 
on May 19th, right after the prom. And this is, I know this is a long story, but I want everyone to know it. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's great. So, so my students come up to me and they're like, well, what's happening with Greg? Like he got in, like, he's, I'm like, he's applying to scholarships, but I'm not sure. So the morning after the prom, I emailed the director of the program that Grong got into. And I'm like, I'm Kimberly Bixstein. And I wrote a lot of representation. What's happening? What can we do? What can happen? Yeah, I was like, let's make it happen right now. And yeah. so they got back to me right away. And they're like, okay, we'll have a phone call. And then I realized quickly that both Emory and the Carter Center as institutions could not help this one individual, which really blew my mind hmm. because these are also well-endowed institutions. But yeah. that aside, I couldn't see my students that this couldn't happen because we had access to power. We understood this system and we yeah. could do something. So that's when we started a GoFundMe. And that's when the week after finals of 2018, my students were knocking on doors in Haddonfield, New Jersey, asking for people to donate. And they kept telling a story. We relentlessly told his story. And we said that if we want to see a difference in the world, we have to empower people like Grand people who will go back to their community and empower their own community. And, and to me, that's why I stayed in South Jersey. That's yep. why I didn't go to the Peace Corps because yep. the work that I've done here has been able to really change the world. Yeah. And so my students in three weeks raised $21,000. We got coverage from news networks. And then we went to Emory and said, okay, make it happen. We got $21,000. Uh, I love it. And so it was a really difficult summer. We had to get a lawyer. We had all this, all these things happen. Then my students oh, used man. every single literacy skill, every single, <laughs> yeah. I had these five students, we called them the five that I met with ritual. It was a ritual that we met at this one coffee shop. We did all this planning and it was a really wild time. And then on August 1st, he got his visa. He got a student's visa. On August 17th, 2018, he arrived in Atlanta and I was there with him for seven days. Uh, September 11th or 12th of that year, the five and I flew down to Atlanta and with Garang, we met President Jimmy Carter. Uh, then wow. we continued the fundraise. We continued, we raised another $30,000 uh, during that time. So we raised a collective around $50,000 for his education. And then Garang applied to a fellowship, earned that fellowship that then paid for him to get a second master's degree. So he earned that on his own to earn a second master's degree at Emory and graduated this May with his second master's. And now he has returned home to his wife and three children. And he has been able to, while he was away during the pandemic, Gerardo, build a community center. He raised $10,000. He sent tens of thousands, if not hundreds, hundreds of thousands of books home to his home village of a wheel and sent home wow. uh, dozens of computers. And so for me, and this is a place that that you and I could not get to. Like there are no commercial flights to sure. his village. Sure. And so if we really want to invest in community development, when I think of myself as a community organizer, like we have to invest in the people who want to give back and empower home. Yeah. And, and do that for one another. And so I'm getting so worked up right now. To like this story. It's, no, it's but, a beautiful story. It's an incredible but Greg story. Brought me closer to my principles yeah. than than any curriculum could. Wow. Right. And, wow. and Green Book was something that was inspired by how do I humanize what I'm teaching? Yeah. How do I share my access with students? And then how do I teach my students in turn to share yeah. their access to knowledge yeah. and power? And 
and to work with others. Like we worked with Garang to make this happen. Yeah. And yeah. we understood that the world is inequitable. The world is has has historically shown us that it can be terribly unfair. Yeah. But I also think the world has shown us that historically anything can happen. That's and right. that's right. And we can always help each other out. We can always work in always community. help each other out. And to think about how he has given back and that work had started in this classroom from saying we are not going to just read this book. Hmm. Uh, and and we are going to go beyond it. And that to me can happen with any text, right? And it's not that I'm going to repeat this process again. It's no. the idea that every year there's possibility. And that's so exciting. Like I have no idea what next year's gonna bring. That's awesome. <laughs> and I can be inspired and awe-inspired by whatever we come to, right? Yeah. And and I have applied that work, uh, that that philosophy to everything that I do. And sometimes it's more successful than others. But like sure. I said, you know, the, that growth is guaranteed. We all grew a lot from that experience. And although that experience was successful, it did not come out, come without trials and tribulations. And since yep. this is a podcast that is about being habitually disruptive, what yep. I will say is Gerardo, I very well could have lost my job and probably should have lost sure. my job. <laughs> <laughs> because I said, okay, the school year's ending, but let's go fund Like you're in final exams. Well, in between these two finals, let's meet in my classroom yeah. and talk about what we're going to do. Next week, school's ending. Okay, let's let's go knock on doors. Yeah. Let's create a fire and let, let's get this whole community to yeah. rally behind possibility and faith. And that the faith that with an education, right, we are, we have the possibility to equalize a lot of this world. And I really yeah. do believe that even though we struggle sometimes to see it and we know that, that there is a lot of work to do, but yeah. to me, that was disrupting what we do in schools. Like we could yeah. do so much more than a, than a project, a test. Like this was to me, not a project. I don't even know what to call it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, I mean, you're, you're just engaging in the authentic work and yeah. when when students' hearts are in it, this is why it's not replicable because, Correct. you know, you can't, you know, first of all, you can't just come back next year and say, okay, this year we're going to help Garang book again. <laughs> you know, we're going to have this whole like process. Um, but what you can do is share stories like that and say, you're not going yeah. to do what this group of students did last year. That was very particular to that group. This group yeah we're gonna find something to invest ourselves in and yeah. you know and and there is not a single young person who went through that with you that will ever forget it and, and that's you know what's wild is you know Grung, when he he came to Haddonfield multiple times and he delivered an assembly to all 800 students in the school so every kid knew him every teacher knew him and it would be it would it would bring me this joy that he would walk around the hallways in that October. You know, this is his third month in America. He's yeah. walking around the American high school where kids are like, Grang, Grang, high five in him. <laughs> in the, team, the cheerleaders. He's just, he's he just a, a part tunnel. of the community. He's just in the community. <laughs> he, was, he went to the police and fire day and wow. everybody wanted their picture with him. He gave a reading at two churches in town. Oh, and so man. we rallied, but my students, we said, the only way this is going to work is if we bring, if we bring everyone with us. 
And that's my philosophy of teaching is that I want to bring, bring everyone everybody. with us, bring everyone, bring with, everyone us. with us. Right. And so, and that's with every book, every, every challenge, every idea. And that has clearly kept me enthused about this work. <laughs> yeah, no, like that, that's putting it lightly. And I think that, I mean, it, it's giving me a lot of, um, like I could run through a wall right now. I'm so excited. Like yeah. this is an amazing thing. Yeah. All right, y'all, we have reached the most important segment of Habitually Disruptive. We got some critical questions for you, Kimberly. Critical questions. Like, are you ready for this? Like, I, I, I think I know they're going to be mind-blowing, so I just want everyone on the other end to be prepared. <laughs> yeah, because honest, honestly, this this is what's probably going to win me a Pulitzer, just so you're aware. And you're so. Welcome. So take this seriously. I, ca I can't have you messing this up for me. All right. So um, we're going to do this. All okay. right. So Kimberly Dixteen Hughes, you are a language arts teacher, Correct. English language arts teacher. If you could live the life of a fictional character, and I guess I should say it doesn't have to be in literature, but that would be mm -hmm. kind of fun. Uh, I was an English major for 24 credits. And so, okay. um, so, you know, I'm, there's a non-zero chance I'll know who you're talking about. <laughs> Whose fictional life would you choose? Okay. So I'm, I'm giving this, I'm going to go a deep cut here. Oh, nice. For all of my Love deep cuts. Love deep cuts. fans out there. So I have recently invested my brain in rereading Shakespeare's histories because we don't oh, give them. Oh, yeah. And so I always struggle. Like Shakespeare writes really strong female characters, mm. but. They often have to be in disguise or be someone else in order to exercise their power mm. or give up something. But yeah. Queen Margaret of the oh, Hen. I don't know that one. Yeah, I know. I told you, deep cut, man. Uh, so Queen Margaret, I think it's Henry uh, the Sixth, like part one, two, and three. And she's all. Okay. Oh, I have lost your audio. I cannot hear you. <laughs> All right. One of us she is for always hold her ground. And she actually uh, has this really like badass. Well, can I say that on here? You can. You can. I'm, I'm actually going to have you say that again because I think I froze. And then you cut out. And so I missed most of the explanation. Oh, <laughs> most no. of the lead up. That's okay. But you know what? One of the things I've learned how to do is edit. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> just just take it away. We'll fix it in the actually, you know what I'm gonna do? Give me two seconds. I'm gonna switch networks. Um yeah, because I'm on my guest network that is decidedly terrible. So I'm gonna freeze for a second. Okay, I hear you. The video hasn't caught up. All right, here we go. Okay, cool. All right, let's let's try that, that again. Just pick it up from um, from Queen Margaret. Cool. Now you're skipping on my end. Cool. <laughs> right, am, I, am I still am I still skipping on your end? No, now you're good. But right when you okay. started talking. Okay. All right, I, I might turn off my video for this part, and that yeah, might go ahead. a little bit. Okay. Should I turn? Do you want me to turn off my video? I think it may be on my end. So, okay. um, because you're coming through loud and clear, um, cool. and I was just warned that my internet 
connections unstable. So, um, all right. So yeah, take it away. So Queen Margaret. Okay. So Queen Margaret basically holds her own among kings and the men of court and oftentimes is making decisions that like the men either can't come to are making countless errors and is this awesome badass speech like i was saying about taking revenge on richard iii and in that moment you know and as a queen right she's never like bending to anyone else's orders like she holds the reins and so and she appears in four different plays and someone can fact check me on that one but i'm pretty sure (laughs) (laughs) she's in four different plays and so you know i just i just loved her she's ruthless she's powerful and i don't know what that says about me (laughs) (laughs) no i'd like to think that i'm assertive and i'm a boss and she's all of those things so i like it so I would go that. I would go that. There's nothing sweet about her, even though I think that. No, I'll take it. I, I'd be her. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. And and by the way, Richard the Third. I have to ask you, um, what did you think about the film adaptations? Adaptation, the one, the one with Ian McKellen, because I'm assuming you saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, so I love Ian McKellen. Yeah, he's um, brilliant. He's totally brilliant. I think that Shakespeare on film always loses something. Mm. Uh, there, there is a brilliance about like breathing life into a play uh, right. when you're there in the audience, but seeing it on stage, I mean, seeing it on film is totally different. So I think E. McKellen, although like strong Richard, yeah. uh, not for me, Something, uh, there's something about Richard, like, okay, so how do I say this? Because I love Ian McKellen. Yeah. I want to make it really clear. There is no shade being cast at Ian McKellen, the actor. Yes, that's basically what I'm trying to say. But, you know, he read all of the sonnets on Twitter during the pandemic, and it was fantastic. And I was tuned in. I I would, like, look for his Twitter account. (laughs) Uh, So Richard, he has a series of monologues in the play and his soliloquies, he basically tells us like all of his secret plans and it makes him really charming and engaging. And he's doing all these awful things. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and he breaks that fourth wall and does that in the film. And that's really yep. powerful, but it's just not the same as when yeah. you're in. Person. So it's hard for me, like any feedback on a Shakespeare film. I think there's so much to be done analytically, but totally. Uh, good like good would show in class and be happy with it but yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but not the same as taking the kids on a field trip at a community theater and sure. your you know, richard isn't exactly in mccallan but you know it it works <laughs> <laughs> it does it does yeah I, so i was thinking about this fictional character thing and i think i don't know how deep a cut mine is like for me for me it's not a deep cut um but i think mine would probably be um Easy Rollins from the Walter Mosley sort of from the Easy Rollins mysteries. There was, there's just something about a dude who can just survive and maneuver and with total confidence, like Denzel Washington playing Easy Rollins in Devil in a Blue Dress was the most perfect casting I've ever seen. So it'd either be that or like going way back and only because I've been watching the, the Netflix series, um, 
uh, okay. Lupin, Arsene Lupin, the, yeah. um, this, the, like, and I, yeah. I love the Netflix series. I'm actually making my spouse watch the first season with me so that she can partake in the second season with me, which has just dropped. Um, okay. But it's so interesting because I think that, you know, I had a student once uh, say to me uh, kind of in his frustration that in Denver, um, all of the reading and writing that seems valued is nonfiction. And mm. um, and he, he just was frustrated because he's like, this is how we learn empathy. This is how we learn about how humans are complex. This is how we even imagine alternative versions of ourselves. And this is just awful. And so I think this fictional character topic is so important. Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful for your student to have said yeah. that. He's cool. Yeah. Shout out, Ben. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> hey, Ben. I appreciate you. <laughs> But that's, I think that's really powerful to think about literature and thinking about the value of fiction uh, in terms of empathy, compassion, and connection, right? Um, And and you know, it's interesting though, like with my character, when I, between Margaret, like there, there's a lot about her that I probably wouldn't want to associate with. However, like I appreciate her in her context and like I could step into that and, like, and understand like, yep. like she wants vengeance on Richard, like for her family, for her honor, for, for her country. Um, I wouldn't want to wish ill on someone, but he's an awful person, but like in her context, right. like right. she didn't necessarily have that power, but she takes it. Yeah, right? like, absolutely. Like stands her ground. I mean, it's really powerful. See, this is why this is why our conversations take so long because, like, <laughs> now I'm connecting to. There's a great <laughs> book that um that I read as a history major. Um, it's one of those big sort of coffee table books with lots yeah. of beautiful illustrations, and it's called I Claudia. And um, and I, Claudia, is essentially a history of women in ancient Rome. And so yeah. when we look at, you know, some of the wives of the emperors, most notably the, the wife of Augustus, who probably poisoned him, um, you know, you see it's like, wow, she was she was ruthless and opportunistic. So, like she killed all these these people who um, might replace her son as a successor to the throne. But when you see in an era of paterfamilias and you know this this reality of global patriarchy that, that continues today like I, I i can't be mad at a woman saying i'm just going to claim some power for myself because you ain't going to give it to me yeah, <laughs> you know absolutely. so yeah, yeah. yeah all right well so you've got you've got me 33 percent of the way to a pulitzer and so i really appreciate you for that um all right. So this is a really serious question. This is an anthropological question. I'm I'm all about cultures, man. I'm all about like different places. And we I live out here in the desert um, in the in the proverbial sticks. Uh, and, and we hear about these things called coastal cities and cultures. And, you know, and it's just fascinating. We're fascinated by these things. You are in the great state of New Jersey, the Garden mm-hmm. State, if you the will. Garden Yes. Um, although I love that you're a Sixers fan, but that's a completely different conversation. So, by the way, condolences. Um, I, I feel it was I, very hard. Game yeah, I feel yeah. like you and I are are in similar pain, except at least we had our second best player hurt for the yeah. season. Oh. So, yeah, <laughs> tough, tough, tough. So, I and all of us here at Two Dope Productions are really curious. What's the most Jersey thing about you? Okay, and, and you've done exhaustive research, as I understood, because have, have, you aren't just taking it from your point of view. You want to know what the people had to say about this. Correct. I I 
connected with the people. I reached out to my students and Miss Kimberly, my woman of the people. Yes, I'm a woman of the people. I really am. Bring the people with you. That's, That's something right. that I really live by. Always. Uh, I reached out to my students and we had, they had lots of questions about one, like, how do I eat a Jersey tomato? Do I eat it like an <laughs> apple? They asked me, like, how much do I like hoagies? Oh, yeah. Water, water, like my accent. I, I, from everyone on this call or on this this recording can decide for themselves whether or not they think I have a Jersey accent. Yes. Um, how to like go to the Jersey Shore. Yes, then, yes, that, that will come up. Absolutely. Yes. And and uh, and then I actually asked some of my cohort from the 2020 State Teachers of the Year from wow. one of our chats. I asked like Connecticut, Utah, Alaska, and okay. And Michigan and right. they had concurred with my student well they also asked me how much do I like Bruce Springsteen oh so yep, yep, research. yep like people wanted to know like do, do I know all of Whitney Houston songs um uh, <laughs> asked me like how much do you like Fetty Wap I was like okay yeah, now this is this is, this is a yeah. real uh exhaustive process that you it is it was I'm actually exhausted going through it <laughs> um and my my data is is at my, on my school computer so I can't deliver that now so, right right right, so, right. My one student, I have to give Ava credit for this. Shout like, out Ava. Shout out Ava. She goes, I think you have big New Jersey energy. Okay. And, and I was like, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> and, and I was like, I like it. I like where you're going with that. And she's like, you say what you want to say. You're unapologetically you. You don't take crap from anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but you're willing to defend the heck out of your people. Yeah. And that's New Jersey, like New Jersey, yeah. not New Jersey's back. And like yeah. only New Jersey can mock New Jersey, but like New Jersey owns it. Like we've got the best pizza. We've got mm. nobody pops our bagels. Tell, tell, tell the people, like, tell the people. Oh, oh, I'm telling the people. And listen, like we have the best like government Twitter account, NJGov. Like they got sacked. <laughs> Follow they NJGov. Broke, they broke the internet with a your mom tweet. So I don't know. Like I feel like... I'm an embodiment of all of that energy. Yeah. <laughs> so when Ava said that, I was like, yes, yes, yeah. that is exactly right. And I love it. there's just a, a strength that comes with, you know, being born and raised in the garden state, but actually I just lied. I don't want to lie to the people. I was born in Philadelphia, but yep. <laughs> I was raised in the garden state. <laughs> now, I grew up like 20 minutes from Philadelphia. I'm from Camden County. Yeah. So it's so a real tight. Uh, a connection to Philly. Yeah, but, and I feel like borders mean a lot less out in that, out in out where you live than they do out here, where you literally have to drive six hours to get out of the state in any direction yeah. from from Denver. So, yeah, no, I love that. And so I like, and we've never met in person, but the um, but having seen some of your photos, you're diminutive. You're small. Right? Yes, I am. And so, I'm and so I feel. Here. I feel like that just kind of feeds into that, like that, that kind of spitfire energy that you're like, I don't care how little I am. Like, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, close for you if you disrespect yeah, exactly. Scrappy is probably like in my limited, like interactions with folks from New Jersey. Um, Scrappy, I think is a really great shout out to Angel Santiago, the 2021 yes. New Jersey oh, teacher of the my year. Man. He's my dude. <laughs> Beautiful soul, wonderful heart, and also uh, a scrapper. And I enjoy his energy as well. All right. Well, I think I am 66% of the way there. You're, you're doing, you're doing great. Um, 
So this is a big one. This is a big one. Um, and if I was waiting this, I would actually probably make this 40% of, oh my, of my Pulitzer. So I, don't you love how I'm making you accountable for whether I, I know I'm spitzing I don't, people can't see that, but I am. Yeah, <laughs> they can't. We're not, we're not a, we're not a video show yet, uh, which is good. Oh, given okay. what, I, oh, what I look like right now. Um, all right. So top five performing artists, rappers, or entertainers. Now you said you have a spin on this and I'm I here have, for it. I have a spin. So I'm going to do the top five performing artists like of the, like, of my life like um the chronicle of my life so so the first so my first artist i was supposed to the first concert ever i went to was willie nelson yo Uh, (laughs) i met willie nelson in person at 10 years old as my first concert and then i had gone to tons of subsequent concerts after my parents were huge groupies um so (laughs) we're like living and breathing on the road again and I, I met was John not Cash. expecting Willie Nelson. I wasn't expecting <laughs> Willie Nelson. I got to be honest with you. I love it. I told you I'm here for the Pulitzer. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> and like that started like, so Willie Nelson, now this is not including this in the artist, but then I had met like Johnny Cash, Christian Schofferson, Tammy Wynette, like all those Casually folks. Casually drops these country yeah. legends. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> drops them. Thank you, Howard and Kath. Those are my parents. Shout out to Howard and Kathy. Shout out to Howard and Kath. Okay, so then I have to say my high school, like playlist life, and this is I feel like all of New Jersey or Southern New Jersey (laughs) was Dave Matthews band, like high school, like basically everyone was living and breathing Dave Matthews band, whether you like it or not, you had no choice. My high school experience, it was like that or like My Chemical Romance. So I was basically listening oh, to Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My Chemical Romance has aged extremely well. Like my 16-year-old yeah, is super into them. Agreed, <laughs> agreed. That's that's why I'm dropping it because my students also like My Chemical Romance. So, I, so I, there's, I, apparently a, there's apparently a, uh, a uh, TikTok out there that my child put up of me singing I'm not okay with her in the car and like everybody being completely blown away that I knew the words. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, the, the song slaps. <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so anyway, this is your top five, not mine. Okay. okay. No, it's okay. This is an interactive show. <laughs> so three, I would say I'm going to go into like my mid twenties now. I guess I'm skipping college. <laughs> okay. It, well, it sometimes it's best, right? Yeah, yeah. I know those those are interesting times. Um, <laughs> and so I go like during my like mid twenties, late twenties. I was in this like deep indie chill, indie pop, indie rock mm. theme. Um, and I discovered this this band, The Head and the Heart. And which led me to the Lumineers, which led me to Florence and Machine and Mumford and Sons. So like I'm with three a genre. Yeah, it's like a it's like a it's like a gateway uh to a to a genre. Yeah, I got you. And I I love that. I've not heard of them actually. That's Oh, the head and the heart. Rivers and Roads is a beautiful song. Rivers and Roads. I have to check it out. This is the real reason I do this, so I can learn about. Yeah, my no, so good. <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> but really, like a gateway to so much other great music. And then, like, I started listening to the XX. So anyway, I'm really getting off of the prompt, but I always invite my students to rewrite my prompts that I write for them. So Ooh. I'm taking. Oh, so you're rewriting my prompt. I love it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and so, <laughs> and so, okay, so that's a whole genre. That's like yeah. a whole. 
Then I'm going to go to the soundtrack of my marriage, which okay. would be artist for which would be wu-tang clan so Wu-Tang is oh yeah you have a cool thing about this yeah so my husband knows every single word and he is not on this podcast right now but i am very comfortable saying this that he was every single word to every wu-tang clan song and it is the soundtrack of our apartment the soundtrack of our car rides like if like, can it be also simple on repeat in my mind when going on yeah. a run like that? So yeah. we even had and also a perfect running cadence song. I think it's at about yes. 166 BPM. And so it's perfect. Yeah. Okay. So that, that part, I didn't know. For those of you sitting at home, Kimberly is up out of her chair, uh, l- looking at something. Because <laughs> I really, I was really embarrassed. I had to get up for a second because it's a sign in our house. Um, and so we actually had, uh, and it's escaping right now. So it's so embarrassing that I'm forgetting my wedding song. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fine. I got up out of my chair to see it on the wall. We have like, okay, a- that makes sense. So I had to get up and see it. So you're all I need uh, is, oh. it was. A song by Tammy Terrell and Lord, oh my goodness, help me out, Gerardo. We have to do a quick Google. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Google that. You're all I'm, I need. I'm afraid of Googling. Yeah. Marvin Gaye, Marvin, Gray, Marvin, Marvin Gaye, Gay and yep. Tammy Terrell. You're all I need to get by. And then Method Man and Mary J. Blige did That's right. a, a revamp of it. And we actually had our friend read that song with our revisions yeah, <laughs> at so. our wedding ceremony wow and so we had we were trying to find a Wu-Tang Clan song but nothing quite fit so yeah. that was you know good enough since he was this was a member so uh, and then so that's artist four and then artist five I would say the artist of the pandemic for me that was also the artist of my composing poetry class that I just listened there to all the time was Bony yeah. Vare and as you cut out for a second say it again Bony Vare. Yeah. Um, and just like super chill, relaxing, like you needed that with all of the stress. And so this would be the soundtrack of my life as of today, like these phases of my life. So you start with Willie Nelson, you find your foray into like Crash and Dave Matthews band, some really indie chill time. Then you get this deep dive into Wu-Tang Clan for a considerable amount of your life with my husband now since 2013 so that's a long time yep. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you end on bony bear just keeping it relaxed so that's your journey everyone with my top five performing artists of my life <laughs> this is this this is a fire top five i love it i love it because it is it is diverse it's um it speaks to a lot of different interests it's contextualized within important um, moments in life. Like I just, I just think it's really, it's, it's brilliant. Honestly, um, I'll be uh, messaging you later to make sure I get your name spelled right uh, for my Pulitzer acceptance. Oh, perfect. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, uh, Kimberly, thank you for taking this time and uh, being on habitually disruptive. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, what are you working on? So people can find me on Twitter at Miss Dickstein, D-I-C-K-S-T-E-I-N, or on Instagram at NJStoy2020. So N-J-S-T-O-Y. 
OY 2020. Uh, I have just really finished wrapping, finished quite a few projects and wrapping up things that I've been working on for a number of years. Hmm. So I'm actually taking a break right now. Uh, right. Which I'm feeling Ooh, what's about. that? <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm really excited because I think space allows us to reinvest and reinvent. And we have to constantly do that in this profession. That's right. So... I'm just using my spaces to amplify others and that's been really fun. So stay tuned because I do think I promote other people's work as much as possible so I can share out what I can. So yeah. Yeah, And and folks, I got to tell you, you know, Kimberly, a super fun conversation. She's also a fantastic follow. Just, you know, the, you'll find motivation, you'll find humor, you'll find a lot of really great stuff. But what's going to come through is this joyfully disruptive uh, scholar Mm. of the people. And I think you all, um, you, you'll just feel better uh, following Kimberly. So make sure that you do that. Um, on on the platforms. Um, Kimberly, thank you for being here. It was so much fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. This is awesome. This is this was the best part of my my day slash days of this process. Thank yes. you so much. Yes, me too. Alrighty. Um, folks, thanks for being here. Um, I'm Gerardo Munoz and I am habitually disruptive.